Tom Woods Show, episode 1408. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by far one of the most dangerous economic misconceptions of the 20th century is that the financial crisis of 2008 was caused by deregulation. Unregulated capitalism led us here. It's dangerous because the next time this happens, they're going to come up with even worse solutions. So we got to get this one right, and you can if you read my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman. Pick it up at regulationmyths.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I'm doing something today that is not entirely unprecedented, but a little bit unusual. I want to play you a talk that I don't think you'd otherwise have the opportunity to hear and that I think is very insightful and I think helps to ground us in what the right approach as we go into the future is for libertarians. These are the remarks that Mises Institute President Jeff Deist delivered at this month's State Convention of the Libertarian Party of Florida. This is May 2019. And I'm just going to play it for you. And I think you'll see what I mean. There's a lot of common sense in here. And there's one anecdote in particular that really hit home with me, that really, really struck me. So I'll tell you about that after we're done listening. So here we go. Now, they had a very, very good audio setup at this convention, but something went wrong with it at one point. So the audio is not as good as it should be but it's perfectly adequate to get what Jeff is saying. So here we go, and I will rejoin you after the recording. Here we go. Put your hands together for Mr. Jeff Dice. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for that. Is this mic picking up okay in the back? Okay. So I have an interesting statistic for you. Uh, 77,744 people in a country of 328 million, were the cause of a collective nervous breakdown. Uh, two years ago, in, the, uh, in Election Day 2016, when Donald Trump, against all odds, somehow managed to defeat Hillary Clinton, at least in the Electoral College. So these 77,000-odd people represent the difference in three particular states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So if Hillary Clinton had somehow managed to pick up those 77,000 people in just those three states, she would today be president, and we would be talking about how democracy is wise and how the American people were too smart in the end to fall for this real estate huckster con man from New York, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is that 77,000 people ought not to be able to change our collective psychosis in a country of 328 million people. And even if you look at all the six swing states that Trump carried, which include uh, Iowa, Ohio, and Florida, that's only about 700,000 people. So again, a tiny fraction of Americans were responsible for this situation in which we find ourselves. Even if you believe in mass democracy and the so-called popular vote, and even if you believe the vote totals with which were presented are true, maybe Hillary Clinton got about 3,000 more votes. By my, by my math, that's about 1% of the population. So I don't like, and I don't agree with living in a country where a tiny fraction of 1% of people can make such a, apparently, psychologically anyway, huge difference in our lives. And I say psychologically because I think we know that on a policy basis, there's not a huge difference uh, necessarily between what Hillary Clinton would have done and what Donald Trump is doing or trying to do. So you have to ask yourself, what grants these 77,000 people a legitimacy? 
And what if it hadn't been so close? What if we went back to 1984, to Ronald Reagan's second election? This is considered an epic landslide in American history. Ronald Reagan got about 54 million votes, and he won every state against Walter Mondale, except for Mondale's home state of Minnesota and the District of Columbia. So by any Democratic measure, an epic landslide, which ought to grant uh, Reagan at the time a mandate for his policies. Here's the problem. The problem is those 54 million votes were in a country at the time of 235 million people. In other words, 22% of the American people actually voted for Ronald Reagan in an epic landslide. So we have to start to ask ourselves, what grants a government legitimacy in a democratic system if you, in fact, believe in government? And is this democratic voting in a mass form really creating some sort of compromise down the middle where the left presents these kinds of policies, the right presents these kind of policies, and neither one of them gets everything they want, but we get something down the middle and it's some kind of compromise we can all live with? Well, clearly that's not what's happening. What we're getting is just an entrenched bureaucratic class that does whatever it wants to do. And politics is almost a sideshow at this point. When we say the government, what we really mean are the federal administrative agencies that don't come and go with various presidents, that don't even come and go with changes at the top of those organizations itself. Uh, Many of them are heavily unionized, and they literally just sort of bait their breath when an administration comes along that they don't like, and they hold out, and they do what they want to do regardless. So the question I would present to all of you today is what should politically vanquished people do in such a situation? What are the respective rights and responsibilities of political victors and political losers and political minorities in a supposedly democratic republic system? Well, it's a good question. It's a question that Ludwig von Mises attempted to answer uh, in his book Liberalism, which he wrote in the 1920s, which I recommend to all of you at our site. So what if we think about libertarians as potentially a permanent political minority? That's certainly possible when you start to think that you need about 70 million votes to win a national election, meaning a presidential election in this country. That's a pretty big enchilada. So what are the rights and responsibilities of political majorities and minorities? Well, in part, that's what Mises was writing about in the 1920s. And he wrote this book, in his late 30s, I guess, and he he did so having been an infantry officer in the First World War, what they then called the Great War. So he wrote this book during the interwar period, and he had decided during one of his darkest moments in that war, which he wrote about in his memoirs, albeit like a lot of war veterans who've seen actual combat, he writes about it without giving away too much, a very private matter to him. But he decides he's going to write a book, a definitive book on what a liberal society, what we would consider a liberal society ought to look like. And he, and he does what he thought he would do. He gets out of the army, the Austro-Hungarian army. Austro-Hungary, once a far-flung empire, shrinks down to a little country we today call Austria. And in Vienna, he starts writing this book. And he's got this great quote in it. And this is slightly paraphrased, but this is more or less it. He says, having to belong to a state, meaning government, to which one does not wish to belong, is no less onerous if it's the result of election than if it's the result of a military conquest. That's, those are pretty strong words. And again, this is a guy who's actually seen military conquest and someone who I would assume wouldn't use war metaphors casually. And so today we find ourselves in a place where people who voted for Hillary Clinton and who hate Trump, never Trumpers, uh, maybe 40% plus of the U.S. population feel as though they are politically vanquished. I mean, this is honestly how they feel. 
And, and had it gone the other way, there's a lot of people in this country who would have felt that they were living uh, under almost an, an occupied regime, an occupying regime, because that's certainly how the left feels about Trump. Just look at him on Twitter. Look at the response to the, to the Mueller report. Look at the response just yesterday to the deplatforming of a, of a few sort of conservatives on Facebook. So this question of what should politically vanquished people do, I think, is is evergreen. It applies in just about all societies in every period of history. And so for, for a lot of human history, being politically vanquished really meant being literally vanquished. There were clans and tribes uh, throughout human history. And so when you lost, you were basically either killed or enslaved. So when we move from sort of roving tribal clans into a period of monarchies, things changed a little bit. There were still certainly conquests and military conquests, but what ordinarily transpired then in, let's say, the Middle Ages up and really almost until the 18 1900s was that you became subject to another monarch if you lost. So you became a subject of a king or queen uh, or a prince, despite maybe your wishes not to be. So war and colonization followed not long after that in the 18th and 19th and even into the 20th centuries. We we still have wars. There are still countries that vanquish other countries and sometimes colonize them. But again, it's it's changed. It's I think we would we would argue that there's slight progress there versus uh, let's say a slave in Egyptian times. And then fast forward to the, the 20th and 21st century. Now we at least in the West have this idea of secular global mass democracy and and increasingly social democracy is the way uh, in which um, by which we organize societies. And so there are still people who are vanquished. I think Hillary Clinton voters would consider themselves vanquished, although they, they, they deny the legitimacy of this election. And that's part of their vanquished feeling manifesting itself, I think, psychologically. So there's still vanquished people, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And, and Mises pointed out, and liberalism correctly, I think, that one of, the, one of the most important things about democracy and voting is that it allows for the peaceful transfer of political power in a society. And again, he finished this book in the 1920s, so he'd not yet seen World War II, uh, where, where there wasn't exactly a peaceful transfer of political power in, uh, in Germany and other places. But nonetheless, when you get past World War II, he was more or less right about that. And trust me, I, I'm not a fan of democracy. Uh, but he was more or less correct. In the West, since World War II, a couple notable exceptions. You can look at Spain. You can certainly look at the former Yugoslavia, for example. But for the most part in the West, we have had peaceful transfers of political power since World War II. And, and even though they're often fraught with a lot of hatred and contempt and, and, and discord, I, I think we would all in this room say that's, that's better. That's better than having people being enslaved or killed or colonized. So, so there is some improvement there. But from a libertarian perspective, it's not enough. You know, what's the next stage? What's the next step in the 21st century for dealing with political minorities and the losers in any sort of political system, including a voting system? Well, I certainly hope and I certainly think that the next evolution in human history is decentralizing political power away from big, massive, democratic, centralized governments towards smaller, local, decentralized governments. Now, can a, a smaller, more localized, decentralized state be as oppressive or more impress, oppressive than a large, faraway government? I think, I think it can. I think what we're talking about here is strategy, not principle, not ideology per se. But I think historically and tactically, we find out that smaller generally is better. Local generally is better. 
And when we talk about the psychosis that came from the, the election of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, and we talk about how disenfranchised people feel and how far away Washington, D.C. feels and how powerless they feel, well, let's talk a little bit about how things are supposed to work, even in a democratic system. If we go back to 1790, the first United States Congress, there was a census taken at that time. And the former 13 colonies, the United States consisted of about 4 million people. 4 million people in 1790. And in that first Congress, of course, there were 13 colonies, which became states. So there were 26 senators, two per state. And there were 65 members of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1790, based on 4 million people. So again, do some math, to extrapolate out to today, we're 80 times larger. We have a population of about 322 million people today. But we're still stuck on this idea of now 100 senators, excuse me, not, uh, two from each state, and about 435, exactly 435 members of the U.S. House. So even if you believe in democracy, even if you think that democratic voting is, is, is the way to deal with giving people some sort of meaningful consent in their lives, clearly the way we're going about it isn't working. People don't feel like they meaningfully consented to Donald Trump's presidency. People don't feel like they meaningfully consent to what's happening in Washington. In fact, if we take the number of U.S. reps in 1790, 65 of them, and multiply it by the population growth, we should have about 5,200 United States representatives today, which would mean that unless you live in a really rural far out area, like let's say in Alaska or something, unless you really live in the sticks, you should basically live within a mile or so of your U.S. rep. You should run into this person at the grocery store, whatever you might be doing. Like This person should be a little worried about you, in fact. And because now we're in a digital age, of course, everybody knows the votes. People used to not know the votes. It used to be pretty nice to be, let's say, a U.S. senator. You went to Washington and nobody in your district knew what the hell you were doing all day. You got a lot of respect and nobody, Antifa didn't show up at your town hall. But things have changed. And things are, are a bit more transparent as a result. So what should politically vanquished people do? What should libertarians do? Should we continue to fight for the adoption of libertarian principles via a vehicle of mass democracy where you need about 70 million people to win a national election? And, and we see how Rand Paul, how Ron Paul, how Gary Johnson did in national elections, often getting 1%, 2% in primaries when it comes to Ron and Rand. You know, that's, that, that's a pretty big goalpost to move, and that's a lot of hearts and minds to change. So what if we looked at this a little bit differently? What if we had a far more decentralized and localized approach to this? Is that strategically a better place for our time and energy? Could we do more at home than we can do in Washington, D.C.? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. There was a great tweet by Nassim Taleb. I'm sure a lot of you know him. He's the, the black swan and the anti-fragile guy. And the one thing he, he hates is academics. Okay, this guy hates academics with a purple passion. He has a, he has, even though he's kind of a bullshitter himself, he has a world-class bullshit detector. And that's what I love about the guy. And, and he had a tweet maybe three or four months ago now. Where he said, you know, I'm a libertarian at the federal level, a Republican at the state level, a Democrat at the local level, and a socialist at the family level. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I, I don't agree with it entirely, but I, I get where he's coming from. And I, I, you've all got families. We all have, you know, that nephew or somebody who's kind of living on the couch a little too long and that sort of thing. Well, why do we put, put up with that? Well, I, I, think, I think because it's just sort of natural that we do so. 
And so this idea that we should do everything we can at the federal level in a country this vast, a country this ungovernable, apparently, strikes me as, as almost bizarre, if not counterproductive. I now live in a town of about 70,000 people in Auburn, Alabama, and we have a not at-large city council. We have a zoned city council member, and uh, we have a public strip mall near our house, which has irritated me on a, for a few different reasons over the few years that I've been there, and one of which is just these persistent vacancies in it. So I, I looked up my city councilwoman. It turns out she lives on the block behind me. This was all very new to me. I mean, you know. Very strange to me to call a city council person. So I called her up and I said, you know, what's the story with Publix down here? It's, you know, it's half empty. They got a goodwill in there. Come on. It's junky. Let's get a Starbucks. Let's get something going. And she said, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the developer to call you. The developer called me. So this is, you know, okay, this is a, obviously a micro anecdote, but nonetheless, uh, I talked to this guy, explained my concerns to him and, and, uh, he kind of listened to me. And so, if we're going to have democracy, if we're going to have at least democratic elements to even a more, a far more libertarian system, I think it has to be very, very, very localized. And I think if you read Mises' liberalism, what you'll find out that it's not a prescription for political universalism at all. I think Mises is, which, which the book is often confused as being. I, I think the book is far more an insistence that true liberalism requires us to respect different political arrangements. I think that's what being a liberal really means. And I think if you go to China, for example, and talk to people about property rights, talk to them about zoning and easements and that sort of thing, your ability to have uh, to shoot weapons on your property or something like that, I think you'll get some very puzzled stares. And, you know, uh, people talk about learning Mandarin and maybe we're going to send somebody in our company to China to learn Mandarin so we can, you know, maybe get some Chinese clients or something. Forget about it. It turns out that Mandarin is so difficult and so complex, so full of idioms. Like if you brought a Chinese person here and they're sitting in on a business meeting and someone uses a sports metaphor, they say, oh, you knocked it out of the park. And the Chinese person will be like, what does that mean? Oh, that's baseball. Okay. Well, all, all, all of Mandarin Chinese is like this. And from what I've read, you could go to China and you could spend 10 years, 40 hours a week in a full-time job learning Mandarin as a, as a Western tongue speaker. And at the end of those 10 years, you would just start to have a reasonable level of what Chinese people would consider any kind of fluency. So you look at this sort of thing, and then you say, well, how, how does something like property rights translate across that? Well, not, not so easily. And I'm uh, amazed by the people who have translated, for example, Human Action, a dense book full of philosophy and difficult economics concepts into, into Mandarin. I, I, you know, I tip my hat to anyone who did I just can't tell if it's right or not. But nonetheless, we have a conceptual barrier, and not just between us and China. We have it between us and lots of people in any town USA. And, you know, maybe social media amplifies this in our minds. Maybe it exaggerates the sense that which we feel we're talking to people on different planets. Uh, or maybe it just exposes it. Maybe it's always been this way. And now, thanks to social media, we know what everybody really thinks. Not a happy thought, but nonetheless, a thought indeed. So what I'll leave you with before we start the panel is this. Maybe the level at which government attempts to assert itself over you is as important as the underlying philosophy or ideology it applies. In other words, maybe the level really is the ideology. Maybe it would reflect it far more closely. And let me just give you one example in closing. You probably remember the Bataclan nightclub disaster 
a few years ago in the fall of 2015 in Paris, France. This was in a very nervous Paris because earlier that same year, the Charlie Hebdo shooting had occurred. If you remember the shooting over a, a, a distasteful, I guess, c- cartoon version of the Prophet Muhammad. So an already nervous uh, France, Paris, Saint-Denis is the suburb, experiences this shooting. And I forgot about this. The shooting wasn't the only thing that happened that day. There was also an explosion at a football stadium in Saint-Denis that same evening. And some, some other nightclubs were attacked as well. So there were actually three or four places where this occurred. So 130 people died that night. Only about 90 of them at the nightclub itself. But 130 people died that night. And 413 people were killed, or excuse me, were, were badly injured. This was one of the most uh, uh, injurious, catastrophic events in French history since World War II in terms of death toll and injury toll. This was a big deal. And I remember thinking about how terrible it was and, and how long the police response was. There were people in this nightclub. I mean, can you imagine what 20 minutes would feel like with a person walking around this room shooting a weapon? I mean, that would feel like an absolute lifetime. So I remember being perturbed by all this and, and just kind of saying, wow, that's terrible. And I also remember thinking, you know, there's no form of gun control or, or immigration control. Apparently, ISIL claimed responsibility for this. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but, but there really isn't anything you can do in the face of somebody, uh, a lunatic or a group of lunatics who really want to harm you. And I don't think there's a real political takeaway from events like that. And it sometimes bothers me a little bit when people like to use these things and filter them through their own lens and immediately start making points. So pretty predictably, people in the libertarian world and also in the Second Amendment world uh, started chiming in on social media and saying, oh, my gosh, these helpless people, there's no guns, they ought to have guns. They all should have had a weapon on them. They could have responded to the shooter uh, much more quickly. They should have shot him. Maybe one or two people would have died instead of uh, uh, the, the 90 that did. All, all probably true in a sense. But I also remember thinking about, and, and trust me, I didn't call her. But I also remember thinking about my French sister-in-law. Okay, and She's not only French, she's Parisian, if you know what I mean. So she's about as left liberal as it gets. And I know her views on guns. And I know that she would be absolutely aghast at Second Amendment type saying, oh, my gosh, after the shooting, you, you silly French people, you ought to have the Second Amendment. You ought to all be kept, you know, carrying open or concealed or whatever it might be. And you'd have a safer society. Again, that might well be true. But I can tell you this, it wouldn't be very French. Because if you talk to my sister-in-law or you talk to an average French person, guns are just not part of their culture. It is just not French to them, the idea that people would have personal firearms. Uh, you know, Paris is not Texas. Okay. Does Paris have to be Texas to satisfy our libertarian worldview? Is it our responsibility to convince Paris to be Texas when it comes to, to personal firearms? Is that an efficient or efficacious use of our limited resources? I think the answer to all those things is no. And so that said, I will repeat, I think the fundamental question for libertarians who are a minority, let's not kid ourselves, is what should or can politically vanquished people do? And as a corollary to that, I'll I'll conclude with this, that in my view, real liberalism means and requires accepting political arrangements unlike our own. Thanks very much. All right, now you see what I mean? That was worth listening to, wasn't it? That was worth listening to. I was sitting there for that, 
and I thought I would like to use this as an episode of my podcast. What really got me was the discussion of France and guns and just saying that, yeah, obviously, if we just go over there and repeat libertarian talking points, there is a logic to our argument. We're not saying that we're wrong, but cultural differences do matter. I I do believe that he's right, that it's not French to carry around a gun, even if it might be more effective in defending yourself. It's just not something that these folks are inclined to do. Maybe they'd be better off if they did, but these are the cards we've been dealt right now. So the question is, what is the best use of our time and resources? Is the best use of our time and resources to go over to France and somehow try to de-Frenchify them to some extent so that they'll be more likely to carry guns around? Is that really the most effective use of our limited resources? So I, like for instance, I just don't, I'm sorry, but I don't get people who are going to put pocket-sized U.S. constitutions in their backpacks and go around Iraq handing them out, which some libertarians have done, as if the U.S. Constitution has done super well over in the U.S. In Iraq, it would be an absolute disaster because of the sectarian problem. It would be even worse than it is here. It's like a neo-colonialist mentality that some of these, I, I think of them as State Department libertarians. Maybe that's the term we should use for them. State Department libertarians seem to, to have The idea that I would go over to Iraq and tell them to use the U.S. Constitution is so foreign to me. I just can't understand that. And I guess that is what some think tanks do. I just – and look, I wish these people the best. And if they'd like to learn Western ideas, no one would be happier to teach them than I would. But again, we have extremely limited resources, and I think it would be – more likely to be effective if most of those resources were poured into places where people are likely to be the most receptive to what we're saying. So telling Parisians that they should carry guns is probably not the best use of our of our time. Let's let's find people and issues where there's already a foot in the door, the door's halfway open, or they've, you know, let's say they've got some cultural presuppositions that seem to work with what we're saying, start there. And then expand outward. I mean, that's that's what Jeff's saying. There's there should be nothing controversial about that. If libertarians had sixty five percent of the world's wealth, then sure, go, go ahead, go go try and turn Saudi Arabia around. You know, go go ahead. If if I personally think that dollar for dollar, you'd do a lot more good here in the United States trying to turn things around than you would in Saudi Arabia. That's just my view. And given that we don't have sixty five percent of the world's wealth. I want to start with the low-hanging fruit. That, that's just – I think that's just uh, common sense. But really his main point is about decentralization and why that is the best way for us to proceed. And no, it doesn't give us everything. We don't win everything. We don't convert everyone. But so what? We're not converting everyone now. We're not winning everything now. So it's not like that's any different. It's maybe we might win at least minor victories here and there if we laser-focused our efforts. So – Worth thinking about. I mean, really, really thought-provoking material. One final thing before I wrap up for today. A few days ago, I told you that coming up on June 26th, 2019, we're going to have the world premiere of The Housing Bubble, the first of, of the two documentaries I've got with uh, Jimmy Morrison. And it's very important that this information be imbibed by the public because you know it's going to happen the very next time the economy turns down. They're going to blame that on deregulation. So we, we got to get the truth out there, and we're having the world premiere – or the New York City premiere and the world release 
of the documentary on that day so that people who aren't able to attend in New York will be able to view it in the privacy of their homes. So I was telling you about that and that after the New York City screening, immediately afterward, we're going to be joined by a a wonderful all-star panel of financial experts, Peter Schiff, Gene Epstein, the great Jim Grant, and and, uh, David Tice to discuss the film, perhaps take some questions. Uh, It's going to be a, a great time. So if you want tickets, now here's the thing. I I gave the link away. I kind of jumped the gun. I hadn't set up the redirect yet. So if you if you went right away, you might not have gotten to the right page. But I fixed it pretty quickly, but I might have missed a few of you. So the link to get tickets, and I really, really hope to see you there. I mean, what a nice evening out that's going to be with the screening and that great panel. The link is tomwoods.com slash NYC, tomwoods.com slash NYC. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing as many of you there as possible. And also on that page, you know, if you poke around a bit, you'll also find how you can pre-order the documentary if you like and view it in the privacy of your own home. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. We got a bonus episode on music coming this weekend featuring Brad Berzer, professor of history at Hillsdale College, who's also joining us on this year's Contra Cruise. And we're going to be joined by, uh, in our discussion, David Longdon, who is the uh, the lead vocalist for one of my favorite bands of all time. The best band in the world that you've never heard of is Big Big Train. By far the best band you, you've, you've never heard of. And this guy's unbelievable. You look at his David Longdon, you look at his Wikipedia entry. He plays like 12 instruments. It's absurd. And Brad and I, I think, I'm pretty sure we've once said to each other that we believe he is the best rock vocalist there is. I mean, that is saying something. So we're gonna have a great conversation and uh, you're gonna, your life's gonna be improved because you're gonna be exposed to some stuff that you wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Your life's gonna be improved. I'm, I'm just telling you. So look for that bonus episode this weekend and I'll talk to you soon. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.